you know, as, as athletes and as people, we definitely look to those title leaders um, first. But I think in any type of an organization, there are those quiet behind the scenes leaders that when it comes down to it, you know, people will look to them as well. This is the Brilliance Leadership Learning Podcast, sharing thought-provoking content and discussions to enhance your leadership development journey. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of new episodes. Here are your hosts, Chantal Nash and Gary Norton from the digital learning team at Crotonville, GE's Global Learning Institute. Welcome to episode 10 of Brilliance Leadership Learning. When it comes to leadership styles, teamwork, and just plain hard work, One area that we often pull leadership lessons from is sports. In the U.S., the NFL, which is short for the National Football League, is one of four major professional sports leagues in North America and the highest level of American football in the world. And today, we have the privilege of speaking with Eric Anderson, a former NFL linebacker drafted in 1992 from the University of Michigan by the Kansas City Chiefs, who also later played for the Washington Redskins. From accolades like the Butkus Award, which is given to the top linebacker in the nation, to the Frederick Mathai Award, which is given to those who display leadership, drive, and achievement on the athletic field as well as in the classroom, we're excited to hear more from Eric around the leadership lessons learned from his team, his coaches, and from his own development journey. So welcome, Eric. Well, thank you. Can you walk us through a summary of your career, maybe where you started and, and how that then progressed? No, absolutely. I, uh, I grew up in the northern suburbs of Chicago, uh, went to a school called Glenbrook South High School uh, in Glenview, Illinois, played three sports growing up, uh, was fortunate enough to play on some very good teams. And um, through the teamwork and through working with some great coaches, um, had the opportunity to be uh, recruited out of high school, was a high school All-American, high school All-State in Illinois, and uh, narrowed down my choices to five amazing universities. And really the criteria I used to narrow down my choice was academics first, and then football legacy, and uh, ended up settling uh, my decision on the University of Michigan uh, for Basically, the deciding factor was to play for Bo Beckler, who through the recruiting process really came out on top in terms of the type of, of leader and coach that, that I wanted to be associated with. So, you know, from high school, went on to, to Michigan. I uh, had some ups and downs first couple of years, but ended up having a, a, a good career. Uh, again, was fortunate enough to play with uh, some amazing athletes and some amazing football players. Again, Bo did a great job of surrounding players with amazing players and uh, played on some very good Michigan teams, but uh, ended up becoming captain at Michigan and uh, won the Butkus Award for the nation's top linebacker at Michigan. Ended up being drafted in the middle rounds at the time to the Kansas City Chiefs and had a career in the NFL for three and a half, four years. That's kind of the football in a nutshell. Sure. And so you mentioned Bo Schembechler and how he stood out to you in that recruiting process. What was it specifically that stood out to you when you met with him? Well, uh, he was a man of integrity. Uh, that that basically summed Bo up. Um, he was an intense individual, uh, but he was a man of integrity. When I was being recruited back in the in the late eighties, uh, there weren't uh, there weren't necessarily as stringent uh, recruiting 
practices at the time. And uh, I had plenty of coaches uh, who came through uh, my high school and made a lot of promises, promised uh, starting positions, promised that I would travel as a freshman, uh, some not necessarily very ethical promises as well. You know, but the one thing uh, I think that stood out the most for me with Bo and and really two of the deciding factors, um, he came into uh, my house for an in-home visit and, uh, you know, he looked at me and he said, Eric, I'll make you a promise. And I thought to myself, okay, here we go. You know, the facade is down now that he's in my home. Mm -hmm. Now we'll see the true Bo and, you know, let's see what, you know, what type of promises he's going to offer. And he looked me in the eye and he said, I promise you a fair opportunity to compete to play at the University of Michigan. That was the only promise he made to me. And uh, he then turned to my mom and he said, Mrs. Anderson, if you give us the privilege of sending us your son in four or five years, we'll send home a man. And uh, wow. to me, he walked he walked out of that meeting um, and I still had a couple visits uh, left to, to make, but I canceled those and... Um, you know, I called him up. Actually, he stopped by the school the next day before he flew back to Ann Arbor. Uh, and I announced to him that I wanted to play for him. To me, that that is the the best example of leadership. The fact that you don't overpromise, you promise what you can deliver on and you're ethical. He did not sell out any of his current players by promising an unproven freshman, you know, incoming freshman, uh, anything other than a fair opportunity. And that's what he promised everybody. And did you let him know that, that that was the the reason? Did you end up going back to him and saying, hey, this is what really got me? Uh, it was some years later uh, after after I finished playing and had been out of the NFL for a few years. I think we were at a reunion um, back in uh, back in Ann Arbor, and uh, I had the opportunity to talk with Bo. First of all, let him know that I was mad at him. And he, got a, he, he asked me why. And I said, well, you retired before I was able to be a captain for you. Um, and he said, well, you were a captain at Michigan, Eric. I said, I was. I was a captain at Michigan. And it's probably uh, one of the greatest honors I've ever I've ever had. But he robbed me of being a captain of Bo Schembechler. And that really set some people in my mind, set people apart. Uh, you know, it's one thing to be a captain at Michigan, and it's another thing to be a Bo Schembechler captain. And so we kind of laughed about that. And then, uh, you know, then I did let him know at that time. I said, the deciding factor uh, was your promise. And he was so genuine. He goes, Eric, I don't even remember what I promised you. And I told him. And he la- looked at me and kind of laughed and smiled. And he said, that was pretty good, wasn't it? And I, said, <laughs> <laughs> I said, that was very good. So That's hilarious. So I do want to go a little more into some of the team stuff. But before I do that, I do want to backtrack a little bit and just explain the position that you played, uh, which was the middle linebacker, right? And as I understand it, that's basically like the quarterback on defense. It is. uh, The middle linebacker um, on probably the vast majority of of teams is the signal caller. Um, He is the person that gets everybody in the right places, uh, makes the checks, the changes. On offense, it's called an audible. Uh, where, you know, you come up to the line of scrimmage and depending upon what is uh, what is presented in front of you, you may make changes. And so for the defense, typically the, the inside linebacker uh, will make those changes uh, based upon what the offense is doing. So I was a signal caller. I was um, I was the person that even in the middle of plays or as the quarterback was getting things set on the offensive side, I was I had to get all 11 people on the same page on the defensive side. 
What was your leadership style in that position? And how would you say the leadership styles of the rest of the team helped influence the way that you guys worked together? Right. Um, Well, I think uh, taking a look at my career at Michigan, my leadership style evolved as a, you know, I, I, I switched from offense to defense uh, between my my true freshman year and my redshirt freshman year. So between my first and second year in college, um, I switched from offense to defense. And by the time we got midway through that first season on on defense, I was the signal caller due to injuries that accelerated my role on the defense. So you know, I was a a 19 year old redshirt freshman who was in charge of 22, 23-year-olds who had been starters for three or four years. And so I was the face of the defense, you know, in the huddle on the field. And so I had to go from a very quiet um, foot soldier, if you will, to being somebody that needed to command respect. And it was a process. Um the one thing that the one thing that I can remember, you know, early on was trying to figure out how somebody with the experience that I had um, at Michigan, who was kind of thrown into that leadership role, uh, probably not as prepared as I had hoped to be, trying to lead and trying to command um, a defense that had all Americans, that guys that went on to play in the NFL who were two or three years older than myself. Um, how do I command that respect when I don't necessarily have even the same experience that they do? And it was a process. The one defining moment that I can remember during that first year was uh, at uh, at towards the end of the year was against Ohio State. I was, like I said, a, a redshirt freshman inside linebacker, and I had all Americans facing me, looking to me to lead this defense and not necessarily lead the defense in terms of being the best player out there. But I was the one that was the liaison between the coaches on the sidelines and the players in the huddle. And I can remember distinctly playing against Ohio State and we had been up and then defensively, we started to unravel a little bit. And when things happen on defense, things start to go faster than than we could keep up. and. The Ohio State offense started moving the ball on us, scoring some touchdowns and catching up uh, in terms of the scoreboard. And I can remember uh, it was third or fourth down and uh, one of our All-American defensive linemen felt that it was his time to kind of take control of this defensive huddle. And there were two consecutive plays, uh, consecutive plays uh, that uh, he was trying to give everybody pointers on what we needed to do to to stop Ohio State. And I remember turning to him as he was talking and I turned in in <laughs> in a little bit different terms, but I told him that it was time for him to be quiet, it was time for him to listen, and it was time for my, for me to talk. And that if he couldn't do that to get off the field. And at that point in time, I think the rest of the team kind of looked to me as the signal caller. Um, We ended up shoring up the defense. We all calmed down and we were able to get them stopped. We ended up winning the game. But that was really a defining moment uh, for me as as a young leader uh, to sometimes you have to be able to step up and say some things with confidence that you may not necessarily believe 
are the case, but you know that it's the right thing to say uh, because of the situation. And then as I went on later in the career, uh, you know, being a leader, I think the, the confidence came with success. Um, as I got better as a player and as I got more experience, uh, things happened more naturally. I was never a, a cheerleader type of, of, uh, of leader. I was more leadership by example. I was going to work harder than anybody. I was going to put the time in more than anybody so that the people that I asked to do things for me defensively saw me doing them myself. And it's a little bit easier to follow, I believe, when you see the leader doing those same things that, that you are being asked to do. Sure. Did you find that that style overall was typical or the most effective in that kind of setting? Well, you know, I think that my personal opinion is that leadership is is very much an individual thing. Um, not two leaders are going to be the same. They may have similar qualities. Um, they may have similar uh, values or ideals. Uh, but I think that the key thing for leadership is that it has to be authentic. Um, I don't believe that you can fake uh, your leadership style. You can you can change, and I think that that can evolve. But I think it has to be natural. My opinion is it has to come naturally to you. Uh, there are definitely leaders that are vocal, uh, but they have to be naturally vocal people. I think when you are asked uh, to put your trust in a leader, you have to believe that they are being authentic. Um, I think if you try and manufacture a type of leadership style that doesn't come naturally, uh, the people that you that are in your charge, I think, can read through that. And how was, in terms of Bo, or anybody that you may have encountered, as you were learning what helped influence those around you, were you also thinking in your head of, of those who influenced you and how you could take those same things that you liked and apply that? I think so. Um, I think that, that um, you know, based upon different personalities, but for me, I definitely tried to emulate uh, the leaders uh, that were influential in my life. Not, you know, the first person that comes to mind was my dad. Um, you know, he coached me growing up. He was definitely a different type of leader than Bo. Uh, my high school coach was a different type of leader than than my dad or Bo. Uh, but they all have have qualities that I think I think naturally, you know, as individuals, we take bits and pieces of people that we deem successful. And there are definitely qualities about Bo uh, that I, you know, looking back at it, that 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 came to me as being important for me to try and emulate. I think that, again, I think it was authentic. I wasn't trying to be a mini Bo, but I think, you know, the word integrity, you, you have to have integrity. I believe I had to have integrity in order to be an effective leader. That came from Bo. But when Bo said something, you could count on it. Um, and I think for me as a leader, you know, when you're in a leadership role, if you say something, you have to have the people that you are leading believe that what you are saying, you are going to adhere to as well. Um, so there are definitely qualities uh, that you pick up from different types of leaders. Um, but it, again, I think it needs to be authentic. Uh, you know, I had leaders when I played in Kansas City, you know, some of the captains that I played there, uh, that, that when I played there were in leadership roles, Derek Thomas 
who was an all pro. Uh, he was much more of a vocal leader. He was somebody that was on the sidelines that was going to get us pumped up based upon, you know, saying stuff to us. He led by example, but his biggest key was that he had a personal relationship with everybody on that defense. He knew everybody. Um, Bo did too. Bo knew everybody on the team, but Derek was much more of a vocal, vocal rah-rah leader than, than I ever needed to be. So in talking about Bo and your high school coaches, your, your professional coaches and teammates, if you ever received anything that you would classify as like great advice in the area of leadership, and if, if you did receive something like that, who was the person that gave you that advice? Well, I think, um, I think one of the things, you know, that Bo, and it wasn't just necessarily to me, it was one of the lessons that, you know, that Bo tried to teach everybody you know, that that came through and played for him was that you don't ask somebody to do what you're not willing to do yourself. And I think that that is a critical piece of being an effective leader is, you know, you do not, you know, you do not go to the people that that you are working with and who are working for you or playing for you. And you don't expect them to do more than what you are willing to do yourself. And, uh, you know, I think that that is probably, if you take a look at, you know, at the people that have been influences, you know, not, I, I think probably not just in a personal level, but you take a look at influential people in politics, influential people in business, um, influential leaders in any walks of life. I think a common thread is that they work hard and that they are putting in just as much, if not more, typically more than what they're asking anybody else to do. Was there a particular linebacker that you looked up to when you were growing up that you wanted to be like? Well, I mean, the funny thing is, you know, I've, I've been asked that question, you know, who did I look up to? Who did I, um, you know, who were my heroes in football? And of course, I mean, the award is named after him, Dick Butkus, uh, probably one of the greatest linebackers to have played. Um, I grew up in Chicago, so that was an even bigger, uh, another factor. Uh, but uh, I think Dick Butkus uh, played with an intensity that uh, nobody else, uh, nobody else did that I had ever seen before. But the funny thing is, you know, I didn't really try and emulate anybody from a linebacker standpoint, because in my mind and not trying to sound conceited or arrogant, but I think that, you know, that, that somebody that will be successful, I think needs to have this. I always thought that I would be in that same position. You know, I looked at myself and said, yeah, you know, Dick Butkus was a great linebacker, but I think I can be as good, if not better. And so I think, you know, having that type of mentality, helped me to get to the level that that I did. Um, not to say that I was on the same level as, you know, a Dick Butkus, but, uh, you know, I think that's, I don't know, that that was kind of my upbringing was I always kind of pictured myself being there as well. I just want to take the, 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 a quick opportunity to capitalize on Eric saying he didn't want to sound conceited because – in knowing Eric for, I don't know, what, 15 or more years, 
close to Probably 20 years, yeah. Yeah. right? And, and for all of you GE people who are listening, I met Eric when I worked at healthcare out in Wisconsin. Our wives met at a gym, and then Eric and I became friends at my daughter's first birthday party. So here's the part about not being conceited. I mean, I could sit here and read half a page of accolades and awards and titles that he still holds in, in college sports. And the first time I was at Eric's house, I was like a giddy little kid. I wanted to see the Butkus Award. And I asked, I said, where is it? And he goes, what? I said, where's the Butkus Award trophy? And he goes, um, over there. And he points and I go, where? I don't see it. He goes, oh, uh, it's under Cassidy's pajamas. Like, it's just, <laughs> just there with, uh, you know, it, it, I would have it enshrined with lights on it. And, <laughs> you know, it, it was just the most humble. And that's a feature, too, of great leaders. You know, not only the integrity, but the fact that they're humble in it. Right. And there's a few points here that I, I want to make sure to call out. One of them is what you said, Eric, about not necessarily wanting to be like anybody else. That is refreshing for somebody just to admit that, you know, hey, I wasn't I, I wasn't trying to aspire to be somebody else. I thought that I could be the best being myself. I, I really love that you said that, number one. The second thing is that you are able to be proud without without being arrogant. I think a lot of times people don't realize that those two can go together. And so both what you and what Gary have said really match up well. And I think that the key to, I mean, I know one thing that, that drove me uh, and, and one of the things that I think made me um, the player and the person that I was, was internally, there is an internal pride and an internal arrogance that does not I do not allow it to to come to the surface on the outside. Um, one of the things going into my senior year at Michigan that that drove me was that I, th I don't know if you remember, but the movie uh, The Natural came out about that time uh, about a baseball player that was a great natural baseball player uh, ended up. Uh, I think he ended up, you know, there was an accident and he got hurt. And then came back years later uh, to then regain some of the uh, accolades, but really did it for the love of the game and became one of the best players. There was a line in that movie that, you know, that that kind of drove him. And it was, there goes Roy Hobbs, the best there ever was. You know, it's kind of corny, but one of the things that went into to my senior year was after having seen that, that's kind of what drove me to try and achieve at the highest level. Uh, I wanted people to be able, from a selfish standpoint, I wanted people to, to see me walking the streets of Ann Arbor and be able to say, that, hey, that's Eric Anderson, the best linebacker that ever played at Michigan. Um, I would never say that. I would never admit that outside of, of you know, actually, you know, my own head. But that was something that drove me my senior year. That being said, I knew the only way to achieve at that level was to play within the framework of the defense. If I tried to make plays outside of what was what I was expected to do, our defense would not have been successful, and therefore I would not have been successful. Um, you know, the accolades came for me by playing within the framework of our defense did not try and do anything that I was not expected to do, but did everything that I was expected to do. 
and did it to the best of my ability. Bo had a saying that there is no person bigger than the team, that the team came first. And so he was, he had the ability to instill in every single driven division one athlete at Michigan that their needs and their desires came behind the overall team needs. And we're talking about some amazing athletes. I played with guys at Michigan who were first round draft picks in baseball coming out of high school who had basketball scholarships to North Carolina and chose to come to play football at Michigan. And that was not an exception. That was that was a norm at Michigan. We had amazing athletes, yet you had these driven athletes that very rarely, if ever, put their personal needs or personal desires or personal wishes above the teams. That is success. And I think that that was the one thing that that Bo was able to instill in, in his leadership style, that we had the confidence in him that if we do what he asked us to do, we would be successful. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what drove us um, as a team. And it wasn't until you you succumb to his desire to be a team first that you know that any of us were able to achieve individual accomplishments. How is the role of preparation in you know across your career for you, for the teams that you've been on? How has preparation played a role in your success? Uh, it's been key. You have to prepare. If you do not prepare to be successful, you will not be successful. And the preparation needs to be in the details. You need to take care of the little things on a daily basis. Um, we used to, again, for people that 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 don't that have not been a part of uh, or been associated with uh, Division One athletics, like Gary and myself, um, you. Every single practice was filmed. Every single game was filmed. At the end of a practice, you would go in, shower, get dressed, and go into a meeting and watch your practice. We would watch the practice film, and you would go through every single play. You would be graded on every single practice play um, and then make corrections from that practice for the next practice. And then ultimately leading up to game planning um, and going through your game plan and then it wasn't until you got to the game, you, you had already played that game, you know, four or five times throughout the week of practice. So preparation is key. Uh, we were overprepared. And again, that's leadership. Um, and, and, you know, there were some times that defensively we'd play against teams and I knew what plays they were running before. Uh, before the quarterback even had the ball in his hands based upon being prepared, knowing that based on a certain uh, formation, based on a certain personnel, the chances were this is the play they were going to run. And that was not my studying the film. That was the leaders that that we had, our offense, our defensive line coaches, our defensive coordinator, our linebackers coaches. They would watch the film and prepare and then prepare us so that when we went out on the field, all we had to do is just play the way that we'd practiced the whole week. And again, it goes back to not just Bo Schembechler as the leader of Michigan, but all his 
assistant coaches. Uh, one of the, you know, Gary, you asked earlier about something that somebody had said uh, that, you know, had influenced, you know, my ability to lead or what was one thing that I could recall. I think the greatest thing that I learned from from Bo Schembechler as a head coach, as a leader of of men was that if you are going to be an effective leader, you have got to surround yourself with effective leaders. Um, you cannot be afraid. Um, you have to have the self-confidence in your in yourself as a leader to surround yourself with people who may even be better leaders than you. You know, Bo was not afraid to to keep assistant coaches that had more knowledge than he had in certain areas. I think that's what makes an effective leader is that recognizing that that you have deficiencies in places um, and surrounding yourself with people that fill those voids. Um, you cannot be a self-conscious or a self-centered leader if you're going to be effective. You have to have the confidence in yourself and you have to surround yourself with great people. One thing that I'm sure you experience as I have is you have your formal leaders like you were, who was a, a captain of the team and there was a quarterback might've been the offensive captain and they were certainly known as that. But were there any personalities that you played with that were informal leaders? They weren't given the, uh, you know, the title of uh, defensive captain or, you know, the offensive captain, but certainly they had, I'll say the quiet title right? The, the unofficial title when people looked up to them on the team or on the field. Absolutely. Um, when, again, I go back to my experiences, but one thing that, that, that even when I got done with, with playing, um, and I've, I've done a little coaching myself, one thing I always tell, you know, my teams is by the time when you start as a freshman, who do you look to? I think the natural, like you said, I think the natural thing to do is you look to, you know, the captains, but those are just one or two people. They cannot handle all of the responsibilities of leading. Um, Bo, Bo made sure that from the time you came in, you understood that every single team that you played on uh, was not his team, was not the captain's team. It was the senior class. Um, so you had not just two people that, that were leaders. They may have had the title of being the captain. They were representing the senior class um, and representing the team with the coaches. Uh, but the leadership role really fell upon all of the seniors, um, whether it was a walk on uh, that only went out and uh, ran the other team's offenses and defenses. We call them the demo squad. Um, but if you were a senior, you were expected to lead. And I think, you know, as, as athletes and as people, we definitely look to those title leaders um, first. Uh, but I think in any type of an organization, there are those quiet behind the scenes leaders that when it comes down to it, you know, people will look to them as well uh, because, you know, they're the ones that maybe have a little bit more knowledge or they may be the ones that have a better relationship uh, with you. Uh, for whatever reason, we look to them. So in any type of a team or an organization, there's going to be more than just, you know, the figureheads uh, that should be expected to lead. And for us at Michigan, it was that senior class. Everybody was expected to do their part. 
So I want to talk a little bit about Ohio State, of course, and then um, I'll go a little bit into post-NFL life and, and what that has brought mm-hmm. for you. So the Ohio State-Michigan rivalry, what was the culture of your team like in that? Was it was it a healthy rivalry? How, what was the attitude around that? What was the leadership going into those, those matchups? Uh, those were must-wins. Um, you know, we went into those uh, those type of of scenarios, uh, those games. You know, whenever whenever we got ready to play um, Ohio State, the intensity level uh, ramped up two, three, four notches. You know, Big Ten at the time was a pretty strong conference, um, and the Michigan Ohio State game was the pinnacle for us in terms of rivalries. Um, I would say that it was a healthy rivalry. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't. Uh, say that there were that it was unhealthy I mean I think that you know it's it's rivalry by its nature is uh, you know you want to win Uh, you'll win if we weren't having a great year uh, you win that game Uh, that that definitely um, helped soften you know maybe not winning a Big Ten championship Uh, but um, you know I think the Michigan Ohio State game has been and always will be a great rivalry there is, and I think that, you know, even even when I coach coached after playing, um, I'm not somebody that that has a healthy relationship uh, with my opponents. Um, part of part of what made me was I needed to have a little bit of of hatred for for the person across the line for me, or I couldn't do necessarily what I was being asked to do, which was you know, tackle as hard as I can, you know, hit somebody with, with the type of force that needed to be hit to, to be successful. Um, you need a little bit of that, of that chip on your shoulder. Um, and we definitely had it with Ohio state, but I think even, you know, using the word hatred may not be politically correct these days. It's not great to hate people. I hated Ohio state. I still hate Ohio state, um, (laughs) but I think that's healthy. I mean, I think that's what makes the rivalry, um, you know, that's what makes it great. There's definitely respect. I respect Ohio State. I respected Ohio State's team at the time. But at the same time, I hated them. I wanted to beat them as badly as we could. There was no holding back. If we could have scored, you know, 15 touchdowns and held them to nothing, uh, that would have been ideal. Typically, that's not the way those games won't go, though. But but no, that's. I think that's the great thing about rivalries is is that you hate each other, but at the same time, the healthy rivalries, you respect each other. Definitely. And was that something that stuck off the field as well? Um, absolutely. You know, I think so. Um, and are you talking in terms of football, like even, you know, in the off season or, or after football, I sold steel for a little while and, you know, I didn't like the people I was selling against. If I, if I, you know, if I could, if I could get a sale from somebody that, you know, from my competition, if I could steal a little bit of business from them, that made me happy. You know, again, that competition, you know, there's, you know, in the steel industry, you know, back when, you know, when I got out of football, um, we had rivals too. You know, there are companies that, that I wanted to make sure that if it came down between, you know, me and my company making the sale or, you know, the, you know, the rep from, you know, from one of the other steel companies, uh, I definitely wanted that sale, not just to be able to, you know, put, you know, put bread on the table for my family and to help my company, 
but it was also a nice little feather to say, hey, I took business from from our rival. So in 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 that aspect, you didn't get a participation trophy if you didn't get the sale, right? No, 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 no. I uh, there there are no participate participation trophies uh, in the real world. Um, you either get the sale or you don't get the sale. And if you don't make the sale, you better come back with the reason why you did not make the sale. Now that that's that's something that that in this day and age, I think, is a disservice to. To our kids, uh, to the youth, I think too many times, you know, with the way that everybody needs to feel good about about your effort by getting by getting a trophy. To me, that goes back to poor leadership. That goes back to poor coaching. That goes back to not being effective. Don't get me wrong. It, it's not, you know, in youth sports, uh, you know, it's not about winning and losing. It should not be about winning and losing. It should be about development. It should be to make sure that that you are preparing uh, the right way. Um, there are just some times when you go out there and you compete, the other team is going to be better than you, and that's okay. Um, that that that's something that is going to happen. So don't hang your hat on did we win or did we lose. Instead, go back to the process. Did I prepare to win the best that I could? If you can answer yes, go on to the next one. Did I play as well as I could have played? Yes. Did we play as a team? Yes. Was the other team better or did we make mistakes? Now you can go back through the process and figure out why you did not win. But to give, you know, to give kids um, trophies and certificates to say, yay, we came in seventh place. No, I mean... If you're good, if you're a good coach, if you're a good leader, you say, hey, we came in seventh place. What are we going to do differently tomorrow to come in sixth place, to come in fifth place and work your way up? Um, there's a reason why, you know, that other team beat us. Was it just that they were better? All right. Well, what, what can we do to get better? Did we make mistakes? Is there something we can do differently? You're missing all the lessons, um, you know, that sports is there to provide for you if you just focus on everybody participated. And so that makes you a winner. Well, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Playing as a team makes you a winner. Having effort makes you a winner. Acknowledging your faults. You don't get better unless you reflect and say, what could we do differently? And by just giving participation trophies to everybody, just because they came out and put a uniform on and participated, I think, I think personally is sending the wrong message. I really like that you focused on the improvement and even competing with yourself almost. Focusing on what we can learn from our failures is important in everything. And we uh, we did a blog post recently about this, actually, and um, how it does affect kids when you point out that somebody did better than them and, and how they might internalize that. And I can see good things and bad things about it. But to your point and, and what ended up coming as a conversation out of this from the responses we received on it, it was uh, it was very similar people saying when you put the focus on competing against yourself and OK, you know, if you didn't reach this certain goal 
how can you do it better? Even if it's not the best next time, what is the next increment of of development there? So I really think that was an important point and, and I'm glad that we've made that connection here too. One thing, just because I'm personally curious, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the media about culture of football and, and sports in general. Is there any big misconceptions in your mind that people have about, um, I, I guess, sports in general at that level or, or, you know, professional football? And if there are some, what are they? Well, I think the number one thing, and I don't know if it's, uh, if I think there's been enough instances in the media now, uh, but that it's basically the stupid athletes, uh, that athletes are not smart, um, that athletes, it, they're, they're just, they're just playing games. Um, there are some of the smartest people, you know, that I have been associated with either were or had been associated with sports, even if, and, and, and the perfect example, you know, the, with with playing football, football has a language all its own. I could sit here and throw terms out that would be meaningless to the average person, and yet it has deep meaning um, and multiple meanings depending upon the context in which those terms are used. Um, there are people, uh, guys that I played with in the NFL, that people in general would look at them and say, he is a dumb athlete. Uh, I played with people um, who were functionally illiterate, but by no means were they not intelligent. Um, put them in a defensive meeting, and though they couldn't read, they could still understand the complex nature of a defense. They were able to adapt and adjust uh, their lifestyles to be able to do everything that everybody could do that could read. Um, their intelligence was at a different level. Uh, you know, there are you know, I'm a teacher. There are multiple intelligences, and just because somebody may not be book smart or may not be, you know, intelligent or or, or literate, be able to express themselves uh, the way that you and I do, uh, by no means does that mean that they are not smart people. But beyond that rare example, um, athletes are, you know, in my mind, in my opinion. Uh, the vast majority of the athletes that I've been associated with not only were gifted athletically, uh, but were also highly intelligent individuals. And I think that's one of the misconceptions is that just because somebody is an athlete, uh, they're not smart. And that I think that bothers me. But I think that may be an old misconception. Um, but uh, that's one that's always kind of stuck with me. I love that you brought up multiple intelligences um, because there's a lot about, you know, personality types and things like that. But the multiple intelligences is a, is a less popular one, I think. But it, it is so true. Just because you're, you're not great at one area doesn't mean that you're still not like a genius in some other capacity. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely. And, and again, I think, you know, also, you know, from a leadership standpoint, you have to take that into account when you are, when you are working with a team yeah uh, you have to understand that not everybody is going to pick up on your spoken word or your written word um, you know there there are you know I, I was somebody that if I sat in a classroom and listened to a lecture I had it I mean I, I could sit and listen and as long as I was, I was focused on what what the person was saying I could retain it ask me to read a book and I might have to read it three or four or five times. 
to pick up, you know, exactly what what the author was was attempting to convey to me. But as a leader, you have to understand that different people learn different ways. Some are visual, some are auditory, some are reading. You know, so that multiple intelligence just doesn't go in terms of the way you express what you know. Um, it also can go to how you learn and how you absorb information. And a, and a good leader is able to understand his or her team in a way that they are able to cater to them to make sure that the information that they are trying to provide to their team is is learned by all members of that team. Absolutely. And so I know that we're almost up with our time and I, I need to let you go, but I did just want to ask you really quickly about what, uh, you know, what life has brought you in your retirement, your company, um, and also just a little bit about your family. And, and I know you're, you have some daughters and they're up to some great things. I do. Well, um, life after football uh, was a series of, of jobs until I settled on a career in teaching. Uh, right now, I am an adapted phys ed teacher. So I teach physical education to all of our uh, students with special needs uh, here in Shaker Heights, Ohio. Um, a, a while back, uh, I did start a company with, with a partner. Uh, it's called Friendship in Teams Fit Program, and it provides social skills uh, therapy uh, for kids uh, with special needs. I have I've since and recently stepped away from that, but it is still an amazing program. And I do, I've been blessed. My, my greatest accomplishment is, first of all, I, I married an amazing person. I outkicked my coverage on this one. <laughs> my, my wife, Hillary, uh, is, is an amazing person. Um, and we have uh, two daughters, Kendall and Cassidy. Uh, Kendall is uh, in her fourth year at Michigan State. Uh, she plays field hockey. Um, and is a is a great field hockey player, uh, second team All Big Ten, uh, regional All American. Uh, really has done a great job there. She has one more year to play, so I'm excited about that. And then my youngest daughter Cassidy is in her second year at Northeastern University out in Boston. Uh, plays ice hockey um, and is doing some great things there as well. Uh, has done some some really good things on and off the ice, um, and so. My wife Hillary and I spend time traveling between uh, East Lansing and and Boston. Uh, definitely now living living life vicariously through through my daughters. <laughs> and if I could ask in the last minute here, have you given any particular advice to your girls about being a good leader in sports or anything like that? I have. Um, again, whether they listen or not is <laughs> I mean, it's a, kind of a father-daughter thing. Um, one of the things that you know that I was taught early on by by my dad, and I think it it is so valuable, especially in today's society. People get spread so thin, uh, doing so many things, wanting to be involved, especially kids these days. You know, having to be a part of every club, every organization, playing five, six, you know, you know, sports. Um, the one thing that the one piece of advice that, that I've always told my daughters is that I got from my dad was, you know, you have, there's only a certain amount of time and, you know, you can be good at a lot of things. You know, you can be a, a good boyfriend, a good girlfriend, good in school, a good football player. Um, you know, you can be good socially, uh, but there really is only enough time in the day, in a week 
in a month, in a year, in your life to really be great at two things. And what my dad always told me is school is one. That's that there's no exception. You need to put forth the effort to be great in school. Whatever your great is, it needs to be great. And now it's your choice. What else do you want to be great at? For me, it was athletics. I wanted to be, I, I did school and was athletics. Um, and that's the one thing I've tried to tell my daughters is, you know, you only have time to be great at two things. School is one. It's your choice what that other one is. And so I think that they obviously playing at the level that they've played uh, that and they are currently playing, um, you know, they they took my advice and, you know, they are. They're great athletes and they're great at school. And I think they're good friends and I think they're you know, they're good at a lot of other things, but they're really great at those two things. That's fantastic. Well, thank you, Eric, for all of your time. I know you've got to run, but I do appreciate you talking with us today. Thank you, Gary, for setting this up. You're welcome. Thanks. I had a great time. Appreciate it. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Eric. We'll talk to all you right. soon. All right. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud, and of course, like, comment, rate, and share. Thanks for listening.